We're continuing our look this morning at the New Testament letter of 1 Peter. Uh, There's a little outline in the bulletin for you with information about communion on the back of it, if you'd like to look there. In the letter of 1 Peter in the New Testament, uh, what we've seen so far is that Peter is writing to a group of people trying to explain to them, you're different. You're a different kind of people. He's writing to people, Christians in the Roman Empire, and trying to explain why they feel kind of out of place. It's a great book for middle school kids when they really, like, they feel real different. Middle school was awful for me. Um, I felt real different. I moved to a new school in seventh grade, and the very first weekend after school started, I crashed my bike and my braces went through my face. Uh, and so I missed a whole week of school getting plastic surgery on my face, but I came back and I was not only different because I was a new kid, I was that kid with the face, <laughs> which makes middle school so much better. But I was different. There was something different about me. I was treated differently. I felt different. And in the same way, Peter is saying to these Christians, Why are we feeling so different? Why do we feel like such weird, different people all of a sudden? You've told us how great it is to be different, that we've been born again to new life in Jesus Christ, that we have an inheritance in heaven, that we are exiles in a sense, spiritual exiles. Our home is truly in heaven, and yet we live here on earth. But being different is hard. And here in the middle of the letter, chapters 2 and then into chapter 3, he's talking to them about what it's like to be different among other people who look at you and think, man, you are different. How do we handle that? And so this morning we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. 1 Peter is near the back of the Bible. It comes after the books of Hebrews and James, and we are beginning in verse 11 of chapter 2. As I mentioned in our New Testament reading, this speaks about civil authorities as well and how we relate in civic society. So hear the word of the Lord from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles... To abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for speaking to us through your word, for your spirit, for inspiring the word, and for saving us in Jesus Christ, that we would hear your word is true. We ask that you would speak to us today. Speak through me in spite of my own weakness and my own sins, and open our hearts and minds to receive your word, to be shaped by it, to be people ruled by your word, who trust in your word. Lord, bless us this day in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So here Peter again continues talking about how we're different. And the big idea I want us to hear from this passage, we're getting carried away with alliteration, I apologize, but as distinctly different people, we should be genuinely good to our skeptical society to the glory of God. So as distinctly different people, we should be genuinely good to our skeptical society to the glory of God. And to see that, there's going to be a big challenge that we have to face. We then have to respond to that challenge, and we need an attitude to guide us in our response so that we are seeking God and obeying Him throughout. So first, the challenge we face. You see, all the stuff he wrote previously in the letter about how we are saved in Jesus Christ, how we have an inheritance in heaven, it all sounds great, except for the whole it makes us different part. And he reminds us of that again in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Peter began his letter calling his people exiles, spiritual exiles. And then here again, he adds to it. He wants them to realize you are different. So he's calling them sojourners. He wants us to think of ourselves as foreigners, strangers, aliens in this world, that we are distinctly different because we have been born again to new life in Jesus Christ. But being different is hard. And we see this throughout the history of the world, that foreigners are always viewed skeptically. They're always thought of as different. Maybe they look differently from us. They talk differently from us. They act differently from us. And we can feel threatened by the presence of odd strangers. We fear what we do not know or what we do not understand, and so we can tend to assume the worst about people different from us, people foreign from us. And that appears what's happening to the Christian community that Peter is writing to. Then in verse 12, Peter writes how people may be speaking against you as evildoers. So he's saying the Christians are being slandered because they're not like the community they're living in. And if we are exiles or sojourners or foreigners who are different because of our faith in Christ, then the world may also slander us. They may also assume the worst of us, calling us evildoers. And so when we face these difficulties, when we are slandered or stereotyped for being different, we tend to respond in one of two ways. On the one hand, we may try and assimilate so that we don't seem so different. And so in order to stop the slander, we try to smooth out what makes us different. So people who would come to America try to Americanize themselves so they don't seem that different. And Christians who don't want to seem that different secularize themselves so as not to seem as odd as, well, those really Christian people. And so we can try and assimilate to get rid of the slander, trying to make sure we don't stand out as weird for believing in Jesus. That's one response we might have to being slandered. But there's also another response. We may try to withdraw, to separate ourselves into a Christian community and to disengage from the world. Because if we don't like feeling different from others... One strategy is surround yourself with all these other people who are different like me. And that way, together, you can say, no, 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 they're the ones who are different. They're the ones who are weird. Maybe we can even get a little slander in on them. And yet, both of these approaches fail. 
The first approach fails because we lose what makes us unique and different. We lose our status as exiles, becoming people of the world. Peter's telling us not to do that. He says, abstain from the passions of the flesh. He's saying, don't be like the world. You are children of God whose inheritance is in heaven. You should be different. So we shouldn't assimilate. But the second approach fails because of what we read in verse 12. It says that your conduct among the Gentiles, keep it honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. So if we withdraw completely, how can our conduct be among the Gentiles? How will they ever see our good deeds if we refrain from being in their view? And so what we need is a third option. A third response to being thought of is different, and Peter shows us what that is in these verses, and that option is simply to do good. It's repeated and emphasized in these verses again and again, and the wording Peter chooses is specific. He says to do good. It's what we saw in Romans 13 as well, to do good. You see, in the previous passages we've looked at over the last few weeks, Peter has wanted us to think of ourselves as being holy. I want you to be holy. He's thinking of our relationship to God and how we need to be holy in relation to our holy God. Yet here, he's telling us to do good, that our culture around us may not understand holiness and ungodliness, but they have some categories for good and evil. And so he wants us generally thinking about how do we do good. And so what he wants us to do is find the overlap between holiness and goodness. Where does it overlap the holiness that God commands in Scripture and what the world calls goodness? Do good. Why? Well, the fear behind our distrust of foreigners is that those foreigners do not want what we want, that they're out for themselves. They're so different from us that they're not seeking the same good as we are. And so by doing good, we're able to show we are after some of the same good things as you. Sure, there will be some things that God calls bad that the world calls good, but in every society, maybe in different ways, there's something that our society calls good that we can say, amen, that is good. And we can support that and seek to do good. Sometimes it's really hard to find, like common ground with that family member who you seem to never have anything to talk about with, that they like completely different things from you and you like completely different things from them. And then it's like, oh, this is a safe thing to talk about. In the same way, Christians are like, this is a safe thing to agree on. We can agree that this is a good thing. Honesty is one such thing. Honesty is praised by God and valued by the world. Serving people in need as well, orphans, widows, the poor, those are good things that the world thinks are good and that God says are good and holy. And so Peter wants that to be our focus, not compromising our values, not withdrawing into our own little communities. Even though we are exiles who are different, he wants us to do good for the world to seek the common good so that we can silence the ignorance of foolish people who assume that we do not want what is best for society. One great example is our Old Testament reading from Jeremiah 29. The Jews, God's people, were exiled 
kicked out, given the boot, and sent into Babylon. And they were arriving in Babylon, settling among a people that didn't like them because they had just conquered them. And the Jews were arriving, not liking the Babylonians because they had just been conquered by them and kicked out of their homes. And Jeremiah does not tell them, be holy, insulate yourself, for you must protect yourself from their evil, for they are terrible people. He doesn't say that. In fact, he warns them against the false prophets that are telling them that. Instead, Jeremiah says, seek the good of the city. Seek the good of the pagan nation that just conquered you. Live there. Get married. Have children. Plant gardens. Contribute to that society. For as you contribute to that society, you also will benefit. You will benefit from it. So why is doing good so important? Doing good reflects on God. We saw in verse 12 that it leads people to glorify God. The people who otherwise think Christians are ridiculous and God is some fictitious creation of our imagination, they might say, wow, this God is doing great things through his people. Look at what the Christians have done that is good. It reminds me of whenever we would go on a field trip and the teachers would tell us, all right, now you are representing this school district. And as we go into that museum, I don't want to see handprints on paintings. I don't want to see statues knocked over. I don't want people going crazy and running down the halls. We represent this institution. Or parents, perhaps, might tell their children at different occasions, but often when they go off to college, you represent our family name. That if your last name's in the paper and the police beat, that's our last name in the paper and the police beat. You represent us. See, we're not just exiles, we're ambassadors. We're ambassadors for our God. He has named us in a sense that we go out in His name, that we have been baptized in His name, and we have been sent in His authority. And He wants us to do good, not to do evil. This is hard, though. This is real hard. Because often He calls us to do good for the very people that don't like us, that are very different from us, that have slandered us, that have hurt us. And often those people are in positions of authority. Peter writes in verse 13, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Peter like, does a real good job of making that sound like it would be a totally peaceful setting. That King David, the man after God's own heart, is ruling on the throne, just dancing like Josie with a harp and just playing songs you know, about how much he loves God. And that rulers are out here to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Peter does not live in that context. Peter lives in the Roman Empire with Caesars and people like Herod and Pilate who are like, yeah, well... Yeah, you can die. Or we'll just whip you. We're not really sure what to do with you, so we're just going to beat you a lot. Okay, we'll just throw you in prison, Paul. We're not really sure why we don't like you, but just go to prison. Peter is writing this to people who don't like their authorities. And he's telling them, be subject to them. To know that they will punish evil and they will praise good. 
He knows our first reactions are either to resist and revolt or to separate and slander. But Peter wants us to submit even to ungodly leaders because no matter how un no matter how corrupt they might be, they at least uphold some basic good. They enforce some laws in our society. Similarly, we have leaders who may or may not be thought of as respectable or godly. They could be current leaders or past leaders that we think of as awful. And yet, by and large, they upheld basic good things, good things that would fall apart into anarchy and chaos. And so while we may not agree with specific strategies of government for various rulers in different places and times, we can agree that government is based on order, and most civil order is good. I like knowing that we have sanitation in our society. It is a wonderful thing that that continues to flow away from us and not sitting around us all the time. I love that we have utilities, that when I flick the light on, it works, that phones work, unless the call gets dropped or you have bad service down over the hill. I love that we have transportation, that we can drive on the roads and people reasonably obey the laws. I like that we have education, and even if it's not great, kids get to go to school to safe places where they can learn things. I like that we have safety, that most of the police officers, most of the time, are doing the right thing, and we can call them when we know they're going to help us. That's great. There are so many ways in which the civic order is upheld in a good thing, that good is praised and evil is punished. But Peter is writing this to people, people who he knows will at one time or another struggle to submit to civil authorities, that there will come a time when we can't do it. And he helps us in that matter as well, that hidden in his letter, in plain sight, is a hierarchy, a hierarchy of authority. See if you can hear it in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So we should obey civil authorities because God has commanded it. So if we're obeying because God commanded it, then our ultimate obedience goes to the God who commanded us to obey them. He is presenting a hierarchy of our chain of command, our chain of obedience. We look to the Old Testament for another great example of this in the book of Daniel, that four Jewish men, whose names I'm not going to butcher before you today, were sent to Babylon as Jews in exile to go and serve a pagan king that led to the conquering and killing of many of their people. And they go and are called to serve this pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar. And they serve him well. They rise in the ranks. Daniel 1 says they were better than 10 of their fellow people who actually liked Nebuchadnezzar and believed what he believed. They were far better servants, even though they didn't really like the king or believe in what he believed in. And yet when the king of Babylon constructs an image to himself, and tells them, you must bow down and worship this image, they must go up the chain of command and recognize God would not have us bow down to this man. That there are authorities that are higher than you, King Nebuchadnezzar, and no matter what may come, we will obey those authorities. That they may obey the king, and they may serve him well, and they may be good citizens in the community of Babylon, but ultimately, they are exiles of God. Their home is in heaven with the Lord. 
And so there is a hierarchy of obedience for us, and we should not miss it, that verse 17 echoes it again with four commands. Peter writes, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, that is the fellow believers of the church, fear God, honor the emperor. Peter calls us to honor all people, honor our authorities, that honor is given to them, that respect is given to them, we value them as people. And yet the words he chooses for the Christian community and for our God are different. We are to love the church. That we are to fear God. That is what he would have us do. And so our ultimate allegiance is to our God. To the king of our heavenly home where we hold our most important citizenship. And so we should serve God, our ultimate authority, by honoring our authorities. And by doing good in the community. But what does that even look like? And that's really one of the questions that's been floating around this week. What does it look like to do good in the society? Does it look like this? Or does it look like this? It probably doesn't look like screaming at and vilifying other people. That would just, that's my suggestion. But what does it look like to do good for society and to honor our authorities? Well, verse 16 points us to a guide. He writes this, live as people who are free. And all the Americans said, amen. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. The freedom he's speaking of is not American freedom. America did not exist back then. He is speaking of Christian freedom. That as Christians, we have freedom to obey God. See, one of the great blessings of Christianity is the freedom we are provided. To a lot of people... The idea of being free as Christians sounds ridiculous, but you've got this book, and look at the size of that thing, and it has all these rules in it of things that you're supposed to do and not do. How, how is that freeing at all? That sounds like the biggest chain-link fence with barbed wire around the top. It is constraining. There is no freedom there. No, no, no. This is a freeing book. Think about what Christianity could look like. God could come to us and start micromanaging every moment of our lives, rigidly ordering what we must do at every moment of every day. Think of the Pharisees in the time of Jesus or monks in the Middle Ages. Oh, got to pray at this hour for this long. Oh, it's this hour again. We need to pray. You didn't have time to do anything else. You're busy praying, not praying, praying again. The monks were making beer and then praying again. There were lots of things they had to do, but really they had this rigid schedule. It was bustling with busyness. They didn't have time to serve others because they were too busy following the rituals that they believed made them right with God. And yet Christians, we have freedom. God doesn't prescribe hourly prayers for us. He doesn't set our schedules except one day in seven. It's not a bad compromise. One day in seven, he says, come and worship me. Rather, he gives us commands to obey, and he places us all in different settings. And we are free to seek how best to obey God in those situations. To look at where God has placed us and say, who can I help from where I am with what God has given me? Who can I serve that's around me? What might I do to love others? See, I love verse 16. It says, 
use that freedom not as a cover-up of evil. Oftentimes, we like to look at the law and go, all right, what can I get away with? And we try to think, all right, like this, I'm going to use the rest of the time for me. Peter is saying, you are a servant of God. If there is freedom where you get to decide what to do, use that free time for good. Use that freedom to brainstorm, not how might I just weasel around the sin a little bit. Use that free time to say, how can I do good in my community? For some of us, we have more time than others. For some of us, we have different commitments. We are in different places and different times of our lives. And yet, Peter says we are free. Freed to do good. And this freedom is found in Jesus Christ and Him alone. Because the salvation we are offered in Jesus is a gift. It is not something we must spend our time working for. It is not something that we must rigorously ritualize in the church. It is a gift to be received by faith as we trust in Jesus. We trust that he did it. That as we celebrate in communion, that he died as a sacrifice for our sins. He rose to new life, giving us the promise of eternal life in heaven. And so we don't really need to worry when we're slandered. Because we know we're sinners. And they probably missed a lot of the stuff they could have said that was more true. That we know the darkest depths of our hearts. And yet we also know that the blood of Christ has cleansed us. And that whatever they might say about us, we know we are forgiven. And we know that being slandered has a good history because Jesus Christ himself was slandered. He was slandered by civic authorities who brought him to be punished, not for doing evil, but for doing good. And he was put to death, executed as some criminal, facing the hardship and suffering. And out of that, God brought the glory of our salvation. So what greater testimony is there to God and his glory than to say, you know what? I'm willing to be slandered. I'm willing to suffer as I seek to do good to the very people who are slandering me. For that is the model of Jesus Christ. And that is what he has done for me as he saved me, even while I was his enemy, a sinner who hated God. May that be our story as people doing good in our communities, serving our communities, but most of all, honoring the God who has saved us and freed us to do that good. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, merciful Father, we give thanks that you have freed us in Christ. We pray that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit and so fill our imaginations and our eyes to see the hurts around us that we can do good, that we can do good for others, and that we can see the freedom we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would unite us together as your people, not to separate us from the world, but that we might go out into the world to do good, to be your holy people, your weirdly different people believing in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.